What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode number 112 of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries for Wednesday. <laughs> Wednesday, October 10th, uh, 2018. That voice in the background, who I presume is doing the Go Go Power Rangers theme from the 90s, that is Mike, my co host. I I always I already brought this up on the podcast before. I but was doing the Wayne's World thing. Oh, okay. You know what? Because you were doing that. You were at, the way that you said it was like Wayne's World. Yeah, that's true. So, that was yeah. That was party time. Excellent. excellent. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was always told though. Speaking of the Power Rangers theme, um, and I said I think I mentioned it on here before, but there was always this rumor going around, like when I was in like junior high, that like Journey like r- written wrote no. and recorded that song. No. Buckethead did a cover of it, though. Oh, awesome. I bet that was sweet. Um, and it is. You know, I'm, I'm doing a new video for my YouTube channel about how, like, prog bands from the 70s turned really pop in the 80s with bands like Yes and Genesis and all that. And I actually started doing some digging and researching in the band Journey, you know. Don't stop believing. They, like, their first two albums sounded nothing like what you're used to Journey sounding like. If you have Spotify or something, go look up their first yeah. two albums. They sound a. They have a different singer who kind of sucks. I might add, like he is <laughs> he is no Steve Perry. <laughs> and b. They're doing this like almost like pseudo proggy kind of jam rock '70s stuff. Sounds totally different. But that has yeah. nothing to do with this podcast. This is a podcast about the show Unsolved Mysteries. Although we don't always talk about Unsolved Mysteries. But God damn it, this episode we are. Good Lord. We got a chock-a-block full of... I don't know. Is that a thing? I heard it on the Clark Howard podcast. We got a podcast. smorgasbord. A smorgasbord. Yes. <laughs> full of Unsolved Mysteries. We, we are... It's a grab bag. That's <laughs> a great way to put it. Yeah, that is a good way to put it. it this is a grab bag. Because these are, these are smaller, maybe lesser-known segments. Uh, the Unabomber segment last week inspired us to do more bombing segments on here. And there's one segment at the very end, which is going to be our headliner segment of the televangelist bombing. And, um, oh, Joe, Joe Lostein's father's in that. You, you know, Joe, Joe Lostein, he preaches the prosperity gospel in his, his mega church in Texas. And he just, he just wants everybody to feel Jesus' love. Jesus has great news for you. And he, he also allowed a bomb to blow up your fucking sister. But Jesus, that's all part of his plan. We're going to be talking about that later on, too. A <laughs> uh, very, very large variety of things. But, um, you know, we always We do... even have an arson in there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, there, Mike. We do have an arson in there. No, we're, I'm summoning the uh, perhaps it's you ladies right now with my uh, Minnesota accent there. You betcha. Um, that's more like from Fargo. Yeah, whatever. Fargo, North Dakota. But you know yeah. you know how this podcast goes, ladies and gentlemen. We do the bullshit and we do the chit-chatting at the beginning of the podcast. And it's going to start with my legendary question. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Um, this week, uh, I don't really have uh, that much to do in terms of work, uh, except for work for school, which is nice that I'm not scheduled that much this week because I have midterms to work on this week. So it's actually good timing. 
But then again, it's like there are days where it's like I, you know, wish I could be working because that's more money in my pocket. And if I'm only scheduled two days out of the week, eh, that's that's not very good. Mike, kind of lame. You've already become you've already become money hungry. <laughs> your your greed will not cease. How is that greed? I just want to help out more. I just want to get more, you know, brownie points with my uh, employer. Um, they asked me to come in on a day that I took off, but, you know, I said no. because like I took that day off specifically. So, yeah. Sorry. Hey, you got to give yourself, <laughs> you know, you got to strike that balance. You know, you can't work too much. Well, I ha- I took the day off for uh, stuff for, for school because I was meeting up with my group because we're doing a documentary on the mistreatment of the mentally ill and uh needed needed to meet up with them and help with an interview so oh yeah I today's um national mental health day so yeah congratulations to everybody who has a mental illness today's your day and myself being counted in that, that number that, that came out a little <laughs> <laughs> tone deaf yeah yeah no yeah, just I, a smidge i'm allowed to say that mike because i have uh i have mental problems to the degree that i have my name printed on a few fancy orange bottles that say rx on them so uh i'm allowed to be cheeky to my fellow mental illness sufferers and um people with mental illness we always enjoy a good a good ribbing here and there i personally suffer from anxiety obsessive compulsive disorder and, um, well, those are the two main ones. Um, the OCD is very real, very annoying. The anxiety is, is honestly, the anxiety was like this huge dragon when I was younger, this fire breathing dragon. I was this tiny little sapling with a wooden sword. And now, honestly, the anxiety is more like an annoying little monkey on my back every now and then that I have to slap off me. Um, the OCD has kind of become more of the mainstay pain in the ass than the anxiety. Um, and it wasn't even necessarily medication that got me to the point to where my anxiety is so manageable, dude. It's all a mental, um, mind game that it's a battle mentally and, um, whatever your anxiety, anxiety stems from a bunch of different things. It's a symptom of a problem. Usually, uh, if you can get to the core of that thing of that if you can get to the nexus of you know and that's where therapy comes in and all that kind of stuff you can get to the base of that problem and you can deal with it uh or you can find ways to cope with it and you just kind of accept that it's gonna be there in your life and you can still live a normal life alongside the anxiety and you just kind of minimize the anxiety you know and 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 don't give it this place of importance in your mind and in your life the anxiety slowly starts to kind of like drift and wane in importance. And before you know it, it's not really a factor or it's so manageable that you're finding that you're not even bothered by it. Anyway, that's that's how I that's been my journey with it. Um, same with the OCD. It's like, yeah, well, the OCD's here. The anxiety's here. And I just live with it and just kind of, you know. Now, sometimes it's bad and I have to like have a little breakdown and talk to somebody on the phone or something to distract myself. But I say in general, I'm living, a you know, the best life I can live, you know. Wow, I just really fucking derailed this uh, podcast with uh, going off on that. But I feel like it's important for a lot of people. I think a lot of people who listen to podcasts are very 
deep thinking people who probably have these issues. So maybe it's helpful to hear about coming from someone like me who is uh, marginally successful <laughs> um, with a few th thousand listeners of a, of a podcast about a show from the 90s. Mike, are you still there? Yeah. Okay, good. Thank God. Our Skype cut off earlier, and I, I, you, you made me <laughs> fucking shit my pants just then. I thought it cut <laughs> off again, and I swear to God, if it cuts off again, I'm just doing this podcast solo. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, anyway, so, you know, mental health, uh, seek, seek, I'd say, you know, go seek a therapist, but honestly, for me, if you have a really good friend who's a good-ass listener, you'll save yourself two or three hundred bucks. Eh, it depends. Um, I, I, I think it's one of those things where I know for me personally, seeing a therapist has helped me immensely and I wouldn't be where I am today without all of the help and encouragement and, uh, sessions that I've had with my therapist. Uh, and it's one of those things where he knew, he understood how I think. And so he was able to tell me things uh, in a way that I would grasp a lot easier than maybe somebody outside of his particular profession would be able to do. So it's because that's what he's trained to do is be able to point out to people uh, like myself, you know, who have Asperger's and stuff like that and to get them to think about something in a way that gets their wheels turning in their head and makes it so it's less frustrating or confusing in a way that makes a light bulb turn on where you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. I never thought about it like that. So when it comes to people who are mentally ill, I do, I do feel that seeking a therapist is a really good idea. But I think the thing is seeking the right therapist is, is a really good idea. Yeah. And that's, that's the important aspect of it is the right therapist for you. Uh and it might take a while to, to find the, the the therapist that you feel the most comfortable with, who has the most uh, impact on you, and is able to help you the the best that they can. But I think it's worth it. But only if like you have the money to throw around, or or you have the time, and you're able to do that kind of thing. If not, then. Definitely look into like talking to your friends or some of your family members or something like that. Just at least talk about it. Talk to somebody about it because trying to keep it inside and and not doing anything about it, that's not going to help because it's going to come out eventually. Man, I have had some bad experiences with therapists and I know one of our listeners... Um I think it's Andrew. Well, I'm not doubting that there's bad therapists. Oh, I know. I'm just there saying from my are. personal, I'm just speaking purely from my personal experience here. I'm not, I know. I'm I remember. Not, I'm not I think saying. you talked about them before, I think, in the podcast. Yeah, either on the podcast or I did a vlog about it, But yeah, I've yeah. had some really sorry ass therapists who I don't know how they yeah. got a it's degree. It's just one of those things where it, it just depends. It's all about finding the right one for you. And I don't. And, and if don't feel too discouraged if you're not you don't find the right one right away. Oh, I got I got very discouraged. I got very discouraged, and I that was, happens to a lot of people. Yeah, Josh, you're not alone on that. Like the first therapist I went to, we didn't work out. So I went to like three of them. I think, and the sad thing is, is like I'm pretty sure the therapists were also crappy. Was because my insurance 
was like a low tier insurance. Yeah, maybe. And so yeah, they were might be they were sending me to all the fucking, you know, bottom of the barrel. Bottom of the barrel, got some kind of, you know, degree in a cereal box type thing and, and <laughs> in I a did, cracker jack box. I, yeah. I literally told one of my, the therapists one of my like issues I was having and he kind of like raised his eyebrows up a bit and he goes, you know, uh, you're you're dealing with that. And I'm like, what the fuck, dude? You, this is the last. This is the last thing you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to emotionally react when I say when I state my fucking problem. You know how much worse you just made me feel. You fucking dumbass. Like, nah, that guy was the worst. So I just kind of after that, I was like, dude, I'll fucking handle this on my own. All right. So speaking of people who are the worst, uh, this uh, arson king is definitely one of the worst out there. Um. This this guy, he is still unknown. Nobody knows who he is, and he's responsible for dozens of arsons across the United States. Uh, he's considered to be one of the most deadliest and dangerous arsonists in 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 the in the world. And this is a guy who is uh, utmost professional. And he does not really seem to care if firefighters or anybody dies in his blazes. So this is the case of the Seattle arsonist. And this was a uh, segment from season five. It's on Amazon. It's on, I believe it's like episode uh, is it three or or eight or something. So would you say that this guy is is just just a hair cut above uh, the look at it, Omar? Look at the flames! Oh, he's Look at way the above that fucking poser, man. <laughs> yeah, he's that, way above that guy. That's a good way to describe. That, that's a good way to describe. Look at it, Omar compared to this guy. He's a poser. Exactly. This is the, he's the real deal. The Seattle arsonist. Yeah. So the Seattle Police Department is searching for the person or persons who may have set fire to the lumberyard Blackstock Lumber Company in Seattle on September 9th, nineteen eighty nine. This unidentified arsonist has been connected to over 20 fires in and around Seattle. The Blackstock Lumber Fire occurred around 10 p.m. 20 fire trucks responded to the four-alarm blaze. When the first truck arrived, the fire appeared to be controllable. However, the fire soon spread to other parts of the lumberyard and became one of the biggest fires in recent Seattle history. And they actually show footage of this fire, and it is insane. It... it, it, it it starts out look oh it was like every other sort of like fire and then it just go it just goes into overdrive yeah the the flames just turn up to 11 and just it, it almost looked like a mushroom cloud of flame it, it was it was insane uh things got really hot and really crazy really quick yeah and set, so 30 setting like a, a lumber yard on fire probably yeah probably the best place to set on fire if you're going to set something on fire not saying it was right but you know if you're going to arson something a lumber yard i would think would be a, a prime target so 32 year old matt johnson and his partner bill meredith were two of the first firefighters inside the building the roof had exploded while they were inside and both Matt and Bill were overcome by intense heat. The lack of oxygen and intense heat left Matt unable to move. Bill became lost and disoriented in the fire, but was eventually able to escape. And I believe, uh, yeah, Bill is interviewed here, and he's talking about 
his experiences. And it's really chilling because he's talking about like, I've had my ears uh, singed, you know, uh, I've, I've been in a ton of different fires, but this is the most intense heat I've ever experienced. It, it was, it was stunning. It, 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 it was, it was just so hot that it could have easily baked him and his friend and just can you imagine heat that 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 is that intense i mean you think like oh on a hot day in florida or a hot day over here in 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 uh vancouver washington like that's nothing compared to the heat that that these two firefighters were in well dude even and, like like um when i did the music video for my band for that song we did called the witch we had a scene where we had this um, body bag and we stuffed it full of pillows and shit to make it look like there's yeah. a person there. We soaked it in gasoline. And then for the last scene, I, uh, she, uh, Stephanie, the uh, my bandmate, she threw a match on the gasoline-soaked body bag and it went up in this huge ball of, of fire. And yeah. the heat that came off it was so instant that you could not stand within a certain radius of the fire without just completely getting burned by just the, the heat that was coming off of it. So I can't imagine being in a kind of closed area. That's essentially like a big ass oven, you know, where the heat is yeah. trapped inside. I mean, yeah, it would bake you alive. I mean, Bill, he, he was talking about it and apparently his body temperature was so far above the normal body temperature that in most instances it's almost instantaneous death but somehow he managed to survive but tragically his friend matt's body was found in the rubble the next day matt left behind a wife and a 15 month old son and at first fire investigators assumed that the fire had been started accidentally by a vagrant that was trying to keep warm Investigator Dennis Fowler, however, discovered a pattern in the ruins that matched the signature of a serial arsonist that he's been tracking for years, which sounds like a great topic for a TV movie or a movie or something. You know, the arson king or, or you know, just this this investigator trying to find this this arsonist. Um, and the way that they shot the sequence when he shows up to the fire, to the aftermath of the fire, I thought was pretty fun. Because it's like he's looking at it and he already knows. He walks outside of his car. He's looking at the the uh, burning aftermath the, or the burnt aftermath. And he's like, he has this look on his face like, oh, damn it. <laughs> it's that arson king. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> Newman. <laughs> so... Fowler first encountered the arsonist in 1984 when Seattle's Carpet Exchange warehouse burned down in less than 20 minutes. That's how intense the heat is with these fires, folks. An entire building burns completely to the ground in less than 20 minutes. The fire was so intense that it melted concrete and warped steel beams. That's what I couldn't... When I heard that, when they were yeah. doing this, I was like, what the fuck? I mean, mm -hmm. I knew I know everything has a melting point, but Jesus Christ, melting concrete, warping steel beams. Now, we heard about that kind of stuff for September 11th, 2001. Yeah. You heard about these kind of things happening with the jet fuel and all that. But 
It Good can't Lord. melt steel beams. This melted steel beams, and it's not even jet fuel. <laughs> I mean, as as a as a would be wannabe pyrotechnic myself, I tried burning everything when I was a kid, and I just I would get some hot ass fires going, and and yeah, I could never get the metal to to melt. But you know, I'd throw like a glass bottle in there, and that would melt, and plastic, obviously, but yeah, oh, metal was A little like, pyromania. Yeah, man, we, shit. I, I inhaled so much burning styrofoam when I was a kid, that's probably why I'm so fucking derpy now. <laughs> yeah, sure, Josh, blame the styrofoam. So, after the Blackstock Lumberyard fire, the Seattle Fire Department began investigating on a national scale. They found at least 20 other fires in both the United States and Canada that seemed to be started by the same individual, known as the King of Arsonists. The fires set by this arsonist were especially dangerous because the oxygen in their, in their water only made the fire burn faster and hotter. Damn. One factor that made the arsonist difficult to track was that he used a fuel of unknown origin, an accelerant that left behind no residue, called a high-temperature accelerant, or HTA, it generated temperatures between 5,000 and 7,000 degrees, three times hotter than a normal fire. A series of tests were done with various types of fuels in order to determine which one the arsonist used. On March 25, 1990, the Seattle Fire Department set a test fire in an empty shopping center. The entire complex was destroyed within minutes. The fire helped narrow down the types of fuel that the arsonist used. The fuel which the Seattle Fire Department has kept secret, which makes sense. They don't want to just, you know, have this segment on Unsolved Mysteries and just be like, oh, yeah, uh, uh, future arsonists. Here is the ingredients. Shit, I feel like nowadays for, they for, would for, online. I feel like, you know, YouTubers yeah. would release it just to get clicks on their video, not taking into consideration like the safety issues like. You'll never believe the Seattle arsonist, the top five ingredients he used to make his deadly liquid. Yeah, yeah, I, you could, I could totally see that. I mean, people were burning shit for fun, you know. The, the, did, did you see that? Like, that was like a popular thing for a bit, like on YouTube, where people were just burning things or breaking expensive shit. Oh, watch me burn this iPhone 10. Oh my god, dude! See, this is yeah. This is why the terrorists hate America. <laughs> this is why the terrorists <laughs> hate our freedom. I hate our freedom sometimes. <laughs> Hey, this is what we do with it? <laughs> Jesus Christ. So, it was a mixture of several common ingredients which are readily available. However, only someone with a specific, uh, and if only I could find a w figure out a way to specifically say that specific word, a specific. Uh, so, uh, however, only someone with a specific knowledge would know how to put all of the ingredients together. Fowler believes that the arsonist actually hires other people to set the fires. The only fire that produced eyewitnesses was the Blackstock Lumberyard fire. One eyewitness had read about the fire in the newspaper and realized that he had been in the area about 15 minutes prior to the alarm that was called in. He was driving along the road of the lumberyard when he noticed a 1970s or 1980s Mercedes coming out of a parking lot at the lumberyard. He felt that this was unusual because of the time of night. Another eyewitness claimed he saw a sus suspicious man after the fire was set. While the crowds were looking at the fire in progress, the man was apparently walking away from the area, paying no attention to the large fire nearby. She felt that the man's actions were suspicious. 
Investigators believed that the man was an arsonist and that he had set the fire and waited until crowds had gathered before he walked away from the scene. This could also just be a guy who's just oblivious. I mean, there's a lot of people who are just oblivious. They just walk around town, not really thinking about much. Even if, even if there's a fire in the background, there's like whatever. I, my mind is set on one thing. I'm going to get to the Dunkin' Donuts and get me some donuts and some coffee. I don't really... Oh, there's a fire in the background? I don't care. I haven't had my coffee this morning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. So under hypnosis, the two eyewitnesses describe two different men. Both are not considered suspects, but police would like to question them. Which is another way to say, we honestly, they are suspects, but... Yeah, we're going to say they're not because we want to question them because we can't be like, oh, they're suspects and we want to question them because then we'd never get them to come over and actually talk to us. So the man driving the Mercedes was between 35 and 40 years old in 1992 with gray hair, mustache, beard and receding hairline. The man was the man seen leaving the fire. The man seen leaving the fire was six foot well dressed in his earlier mid 30s. In 1992, with an athletic build, dark complexion, and dark hair, the arson fires have claimed lives of at least two firefighters, Matt Johnson and Robert Earhart, who died in a 1988 apartment fire. Authorities are currently investigating suspicious insurance claims for fires across the nation for connections to the arsonist. Apparently, it's unresolved. In September of 1992, Paul Keller was arrested for several arson fires in Seattle. Originally, he was thought to be the arsonist, but however, in February of 1995, a new investigation by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms into the Blackstock Lumberyard case determined that it was an accident. Investigators concluded that the high temperature accelerants were not the cause, and that a power line had most likely caused the sparks. Wow. Wow. What? Another possibility was that the transients had accidentally started the fire. Either way, the lumber store of the facility caused the fire to reach such high temperatures. Many of the fires that were believed to have been caused by the HTAs were later determined to be accidents. However, authorities have yet to close all the cases allegedly linked to the King of Arsonists. Oh, huh, wow, that's kind of a a uh, anticlimactic buzzkill. Yeah, anticlimactic ending there. That does make sense, though, and that's what I was saying earlier. I'm like a lumberyard. I mean, you just have straight up fuel for fire, you know, to just yeah. to just you know tear shit up because i mean those logs man once you catch a big ass log on fire that thing will burn for hours so i mean i you know i don't know that, that does kind of make sense in a way so yeah i don't know um, i still think it was a good segment yeah no, like, even though segment. they did they didn't know at the time that it was just an accidental spark or whatever and I mean, just the idea that there's some king of arsonists going around uh, evading the police and and setting all these fires is just just the stuff straight out of you know, mystery novels and and uh, movies and stuff like that. So, so does that mean that there was some unknown flammable material in there that they found and they they said that wasn't the cause, but it was this really potent. You know, flammable material. Like, what? How could you completely discount that? Well, the the investigator Dennis Fowler is the guy who had been trying to find this Seattle arsonist, and all it says is here is that he discovered a pattern in the ruins that matched the signature of the serial arsonist. It doesn't necessarily say that it matched. There was any of the chemical that was found uh, uh, at that particular fire. Huh. Well. 
Whatever, there's another arsonist story for you folks. Unsolved Mysteries only has about two of them, as far as I know. Well, there's another one. Oh, is there? And that's another good one to talk about. Oh, shit. We can talk about it later. All right. All right, moving on to our next segment. This is part of the Investigators series on Unsolved Mysteries. Every now and then they would do something called the Investigators, just like they'd have um, Unexplained Death, uh, The Unknown, Lost Loves. This would be a category. Psymed. Psymed. Um, this would be a category. This is one of your least favorite categories, right? Well, Psymed? No, I, I don't mind it. Okay. Lost Loves is still still holds that title of my... Or Miracles. Yeah, Lost Loves and Miracles. Although I don't think they called it Miracles on the actual show. I think they called it The Unexplained. Yeah. Which, yeah. Is, which is a deception because there are some <laughs> great segments on The Unexplained on Unsolved Mysteries... And then they shoehorn some of these miracle bullshits into the unexplained. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This might technically be unexplained, but don't sully the good unexplained. So what it is, it's it's like uh, I, it's a it's it's like one of those things where it's like a total bummer. Like you're expecting a good unexplained segment, and then it, it's like you're, it gives you blue balls because you're like, oh, I'm getting excited, and then oh. then it gives you like the electric lady or miracle of lords or something, like, uh, or fertility statue, and it's like, oh, yeah, you're okay. like, uh. thanks, <laughs> thanks for kicking me right in the nuts on solved mysteries. <laughs> um, I I actually like how they labeled it in the ultimate collection box at the best. Um, they just called it miracles, and then. The other things called they called it strange legends. I liked I liked how they labeled it that way. Um, so anyway, uh, this is kind of a dated, uh, almost obsolete segment, and that's why I wanted to talk about it because I I thought it was um, kind of a funny look at uh, you know the the times at that point. Well, Cognitech is still around. Oh, are they? Yeah. Oh, cool. I'm glad that you. Did some extra little research. There. I mean, they had they have a main page and everything, and their their website looks kind of I don't know. I mean, all right now it's on the Wikipedia. Now I got to see their website, Cognitech main page, Cognitech the best before. Huh? Oh yeah, they're still they're still doing the same thing they did during. Although a- it just looks really janky and dated. Yeah, the website looks a little un. It looks a little uh, like it was made on a like a build do-it-yourself website builder. Yeah, they just put certain. Anyway, I mean, some of the font here is just no. So Cognitech is a computer image processing firm that was used by investigators to enhance surveillance footage of murders and robberies. In order to so essentially that stuff that you saw on CSI. You yeah, know. that stupid bullshit that they do in movies that I fucking hate because it's such a lie where, like, they'll have video surveillance footage and they'll be like, zoom in on that guy in the corner of the video and it'll, like, do a little cl- close-up <laughs> square of his yeah. face and his face is all, like, pixelated. And it's like, clear clear that image up. And then they'll just hit a few buttons and it'll magically make the guy's face, yeah. like, complete clarity. Mm-hmm. That okay, Or folks. they'll do the shit where they zoom in so tight and so close into, like, the reflection in their eye. Oh, yeah, yeah. You can't do that. Yeah, you can't do that. You can't look at a, <laughs> a comp- an image on a screen and click and zoom in. And if it's all pixelated and shitty looking, there is no enhance button. There's no clear this image up button. You're just that's your that is what it is. Now, in 
when video surveillance gets to 4K, then yeah, maybe you could do that. Maybe you could zoom in super close to someone in the frame and they'll fit, their face will be, appear clearer as you zoom in because there are just so many pixels jammed into that one image mm -hmm. that the image re retains its clarity as you zoom in. But this is one of these companies that kind of first started that stuff, uh, assisting in murders and robberies. And to I thought it was interesting. Yeah, and they help gather clues for convicting criminals and helping solve murders. Um, the technology was used to enhance the surveillance footage of a gas station in Los Angeles. The station had two camera angles. In one, a struggle can be seen outside the station. The struggle involved an unnamed male customer who was assaulted and killed by two men. The two men were arrested and charged with murder, and they admitted attacking the man, but they claimed it was self-defense. And the initial footage did not clarify the case, and the first trial ended in a hung jury. And yeah, because the initial footage was uh, it had tracking issues, you could really not really see that much. Well, yeah, it was, the, the main camera was focused on the lobby area, if you will, of the gas station, and the real action was going on in like the upper 10th of the screen where you could barely yeah. see and so essentially what these guys did is they cropped the image yeah they cropped the video yeah they which is something that was like huge and groundbreaking back then in 1995 but like now the the video editing software i use called wondershare for more of like i could just crop anything like i can i could do that now you could do you there's there are built-in apps or there's built-in abilities on your phone where you can take video and you can do that i mean it's now it's like yeah. in, incredible how much the technology mm -hmm. has but yeah back then the ability to take a surveillance video take one upper right hand portion of it crop everything out enlarge it because that's essentially all they did they enlarged it so it was it was a bigger image very pixelated however because it was an isolated bigger image you could see that um and they looped it as well they just it was like yeah. a three second image and they looped it over and over again and um it clearly showed that the two men were viciously attacking the defenseless customer. And due in part to the enhanced videotape, the two men eventually admitted guilt. Both are currently serving prison sentences in California, thanks to Cognitech. And then they go into a few other cases here, like uh, Martin Gans. Um, he was um, on December 27, 93. 29-year-old police officer Martin Gans took his 12-year-old nephew out on a patrol as part of a school project. And at around 11 p.m., they pulled over a gray Dahatsu, suspecting that the driver was drunk. Been there. As Gans approached, the man shot him several times at point-blank range, and he died soon after. And the reenactment's pretty scary. I mean, this is kind of, yeah. this is kind of shit that, as a police officer, you've got to be thinking in the back of your mind, which is something that can happen. You walk up to the guy's car, and I mean, the guy, yeah, the guy could just pull out a gun and fucking shoot you. I mean, that's, that is a possibility. And then on top of that, his fucking nephew had to see all that. Like, mm -hmm. God, that's awful, yeah. man. Like, ugh, I don't even want to think about having to go through that shit. But, um, so, uh, he, so the, the shooting occurred next to a bank within range of ATM surveillance cameras. However, the camera footage only showed the killer's car as it was driving away. Police brought in a computer image enhancement 
company, Cognitech, and they were hoping that it would enhance the video and find more information about the vehicle. Uh, the killer's vehicle was a gray Dahatsu. Cognitech determined that the vehicle's bumper had been damaged and partially separated from the vehicle. They also noticed that the front license plate was tilted and badly bent in the upper left-hand corner. Now, this information, again, was all obtained from just pretty much zooming in on the yeah. car, which is, again, yeah. something anybody could do now, but was, like, revolutionary at the time. So they were able to solve this case. Eight months after the murder, a man named Roger Hone Brady was arrested in Oregon. Uh, police discovered that his car was a silver gray Dahatsu. Its front right bumper was separated. And in his trunk, they found a California license plate with a noticeable bend in the upper left-hand corner. Brady had previously uh, served time for bank robbery. Investigators believe that he killed Gons because he was planning to rob a nearby supermarket when he was pulled over. Ballistics testing determined that a gun found in his home was used to kill Gons and Catalina Correa. She was killed after she witnessed Brady rob a Portland supermarket. Gons's nephew and another witness identified Brady as the killer. He was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. His conviction was upheld in 2010. What does that mean? His conviction was upheld in 2010. I guess uh, either he was given the death penalty or he was uh, still put on death row. I, I don't know. Conviction um, upheld. <laughs> there was another case that was uh, featured by Cognitech, uh, and that one was of Martin Hernandez. So 26-year-old Martin Hernandez and Ida Mesa, Ida, Ida or Ida, Ida Mesa, were married on October 10th, 1992. Nine months later, he was robbed and murdered in his liquor store in Los Angeles, California. The attack took place early in the morning on July 25th, 1993. Security cameras in the store caught it all. However, when police looked at the tape, they were disappointed to discover that it was of poor quality. In fact, they were unable to make out any features of the assailants. The video showed four different camera views, simultaneously pictured in quadrants. Cognitech, a computer image enhancement program, was used to enhance a store surveillance video and attempt to identify the murderers. They found several problems with the videotape. First of all, the video system used by the store was not functioning properly. Also, during the attack, one of the murderers fired several times at the video equipment. Cognitech was asked to focus on one of the quadrants which seemed to have the best view of the gunman. They enlarged, slowed, and computer enhanced the gunman's image in the tape. They created a continuous repeating loop of the gunman. A composite sketch was made of him based on the video enhancement. However, his identity remains unknown along with the rest of the robbers. So apparently this guy got away with it. Yeah, and um, the up upholding the decision, I, I had to look. Yes, folks, we are that stupid. Um, it basically just means nothing changed like he like he probably tried to appeal the case yeah and and the decision his dis decision okay. I, I, to be sentenced to death it was upheld like so it's still going I, to happen I, I, pre I pretty much said that so no no you didn't we can rewind the footage mike we can and i will i mike i can i can i'm the editor i can go up in this podcast and make you seem i said i pretty much said i the can same make you thing. seem like say, the worst person ever i did i did not say that i said the exact same i can thing. edit this shit to where you sound like a murderous necrophiliac pedophile if i want to <laughs> I sometimes enjoy having sex with dead bodies. 
Like that's the, those are the kind of edits that I can make here. I'm, and it won't be that believable because you can tell that the it doesn't sound natural. Well, whatever. <laughs> I didn't, we're not talking about believability here. Um. So yeah, I just I think that's fascinating. I'm probably <laughs> I, like that's one thing I like about unsolved mysteries. You know, people oh, it's just dated. I think it's cool like to see. Like that one murder case we talked about where like the guy was delivering the Apple computer to the other guy in the in the yeah. motel or whatever. And the, that was a brutal case. But the guy ended up like hammering his girlfriend and hammering him. And yeah, that, um, was, that was. But, you know, they go over the specs of the Apple computer. It's just too much hammering. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a whole new meaning to the term hammered or hammer time. Stop. Yeah. Hammer time. That's not what MC Hammer meant. You know, when he said that, but uh, they were going over the specs of that Apple computer in the early 90s and like the specs were just they, you know, obviously they're not good for now for today's standards. But at the time, like the specs were amazing, but the state of the art, yeah, state of the art and the fucking thing costs like $50,000, something ridiculous or or the hacker guy. Oh, yeah. And all the equipment that he was using. Yeah, I, lo- I loved that one. That was a great segment. Because I-, I feel like the hacker didn't really even do anything that wrong. I don't know. Like, So I was kind of rooting for him. But uh, So uh, anyway. now we get to an, an, a case where there was a lot of things that were wrong. Uh, Mike, your, your segues today are just, are just on point. I just want to just point that out. There was murder. There was... Uh, not letter bombs, but letter gun. So, starting in 1982, an unidentified figure named by the press as the Zip Gun Bomber began terrorizing New York City with packages mailed to unsuspecting re- recipients set to shoot off bullets in three different directions. And essentially what this bomber did is he sent out packages to random unsuspecting people and... They look like they were uh, gifts from like a cooking subscription service, and it's like a cookbook or a medallion uh, or a parenting book or something like. And and they all look legitimate, and look like they came from a legit source. If you looked at it at first glance, like, I mean. Because I've watched shows like this, and because you know, I, I, you know, even when I was younger, even I didn't, when I even had not watched that many episodes of this show, I'd still read a lot of different stuff about true crime and and so on and so forth. So I would have been suspicious about that kind of thing anyway. Um, but and especially nowadays, I think a lot more people would be suspicious of of random gifts in the mail from subscription services they don't remember subscribing to you know (laughs) yeah yep because of shows like so exactly which honestly that's a good thing if you ask me i mean it kind of sucks that people are more paranoid than they were but at the same time it prevents it helps prevent somewhat stuff like this from happening because people are more suspicious than they might have been yeah, in the past. I mean, I've gotten sent stuff from our listeners at, from time to time, and, and I always kind of have that in the back of my mind that, like, you know, shit. Let me open this away from my face. I'm- <laughs> it's not It's not going to be candy or, or, or chips, ketchup chips from Canada. It's 
God, if you live in Canada, if you live in Canada, can you please send me some more ketchup chips? Anyone who's listening to this, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't know why we don't have the Lay's ketchup. Well, I heard chips. recently Lay's do us a flavor. They did a ketchup one. Too little, too late, Lay's. You've already broken my heart. <laughs> I need Canadian Lay's ketchup chips. I thought it would be disgusting. Like, because you're thinking about dipping a potato chip in liquid ketchup. Well, it, I, I I thought it would be okay because of the fact that it's kind of like a fry in ketchup. Well, you see, know, ketchup what this fries. is this is the interplay that goes on with the ketchup chip, Mike, if I can break it down for a second. I'm a, I'm a bit of an expert in this field. <laughs> I've had two big bags of them in my life. So it's, this is definitely a tangent. It's 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 powdered catch it's powdered ketchup flavor on the chip. So when you put the chip in your mouth, the saliva starts going to work on the powder, making this very uh, reanimating the ketchup, if you will. But at the same time, you're chewing on the chip, so you get this nice mash of of potato and ketchup flavor, just as you would if you ate a, a French fry and ketchup. The only difference is the ketchup constitutes when it's in your mouth instead of already being a liquid form on said uh, French fry. It's very delicious. <laughs> it's amazing. Thank you for the expert uh, perspective uh, and analysis of of ketchup chips, Josh. You're welcome. <laughs> and if you are writing a term paper on this topic, you can cite me as a source. Uh, Anyone uh, out there who's listening. All right. So... Um, Let's get back to the zip gun uh, bomber, shall we? So, I mailed these packages, and they looked like regular old gifts, like a book or a medallion, and they were deadly, or potentially deadly, because as soon as you open the package, or you open the... Not as soon as you open the package, as soon as you open the gift that's included inside, then you get shot. You get shot with a gun, little tiny gun that's inside the package... And uh, you have a bad day, <laughs> to say the least. So the first victim was 54-year-old high school guidance counselor Joan Kipp. On May 7, 1982, she was preparing to leave the state with her husband for Mother's Day when she got a cookbook in the mail. She thought it was a Mother's Day gift. However, when she opened it, she was shot by a gun in the booby-trapped cookbook. And the reenactment actually is quite bloody, which surprised me. As she opens it, oh, it's a cookbook. Oh, that must be a Mother's Day gift. Opens it up. Bam, 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 bam. <laughs> and then blood. And then and then she died, actually, later. Because uh, she was rushed to a local hospital, but died hours later. It would be a decade before the killer would strike again. Man, that's just awful. I mean... And that just sucks. Because, like, I, the, her husband was there. And he, he was... They were getting ready to go on... Vacation for Mother's Day. Yeah, like ha you know, like losing my dad this year. It was like, okay, he lived a bad, you know, he lived an unhealthy life the last like fifteen years he was alive. He, you know, didn't take care of himself, and I feel like at kind of as a result of that, like he, he just kind of passed away because you know you reap what you sow as far as like how you live your life and all that but to be with a loved one and have something so random and so fucking senseless be the thing that took that loved one out when they could have had 20 30 more years of life left in them 
that's the truly like pissed off at the universe part as far as I would be concerned. Like, why the fuck did this happen to me? Yeah. Crazy. It is. Crazy is a great way to put it. So it would be a decade before the killer would strike again. He sent four more bombs that were set off between 1993 and 1996. Retired New York City sanitation worker Anthony Lenza and his wife were on vacation in Pennsylvania. On October 15, 1993, their children came to visit and brought their mail. One package had a medallion in it, and when opened, Anthony and two of his family members were shot. Fortunately, none of them were killed. On April 5, 1994, a 75-year-old broken resident, Alice Caswell, was shot and injured by a bomb that was in a medallion box that was similar to the one used in the Lenza attack. The box was addressed to her brother, Richard McGarrell. 18-year-old Queens resident, Stephanie Gaffney, who was eight months pregnant, was the next victim. On June 27, 1995, she was talking on the phone when she looked in the mail and found a package that appeared to look legitimate. The package was addressed Gilmore or Occupant. Gilmore is her grandfather's name. And inside the package was a book. When she opened it, she was struck by shrapnel from three bullets. Although her unborn child was not hit, it was in distress and doctors induced labor. Stephanie later gave birth to a healthy baby girl. Yay. Stephanie, yeah, which is, that's one of those things where it ended up working out, thankfully. Thankfully. Because this could have been like equally, I mean, this could have been really tragic because it could have been like the death of a mother and a kid. And I mean, it was like just complete happenstance too of who lived and who died. It was like literally mm-hmm. how you opened the thing. You know, yeah. uh, like the Unabomber segment last week, like the guy who got his hand blew off. If he had opened the box facing him instead of away from him and that blast went to his chest, he would have died like the guy, the other guy who died. Yeah. You know, it was completely random. It's crazy. So Stephanie believes that the only reason she survived was because she held the book at an angle away from her, which ties into what you were saying there. On June 20th, 1996, 77-year-old Brooklyn retired real estate agent Richard Basile opened a parcel with a video cassette in it that exploded. Wow, an explosive VHS. That's that's something you don't see every now and then. <laughs> don't see nowadays. Appre- unless it's one of those like, leaked porns. You know, like one of those sex tapes that no- nobody was asking for to get leaked to the public. That, But that's that's a different type of explosion. That's not the one that kills anyone. Or could potentially kill someone or really injure anybody. Apparently no one was injured, but the shooting did shatter the Basile's window. Police have not been able to determine if the attacks are random or if they were specifically chosen by the perpetrator. Now, uh, apparently this guy is still on the loose. Richard uh, Basile has since passed away. No packages have been sent, sent since 1996, but police have several suspects in the case. One of the suspects was Joan's husband, Harold, Another suspect was her 28-year-old son, Craig, who was actually charged with his mother's murder three months after her death. Wow. Jesus. That's pretty fucked up. A handwriting analyst stated that a threatening note sent with the booby-trapped cookbook was similar to his handwriting. Also, a package-sniffing dog detected his scent on the package. I find it funny that there's a package-sniffing dog. Like, there's a dog for, you know, drug sniffing, and then there's there's a package sniffing dog. Hey, Beavis, that dog sniffed packages. That's pretty cool. Shut up, Beavis. (laughs) 
So, however, the charges were later dropped. A man named Stephen Wavra and a friend of his are also considered suspects. Wavra had been creating had been caught creating book devices similar to the bombs. Also, Joan Kipp was his high school guidance counselor. He and his friend also had alleged connections to the other victims. Interestingly, records of his friend were found at each of the victims' local pharmacies. However, Wavra was in prison at the time of Joan's death, and despite this, investigators believe that he may have had his friend create and mail the bomb. To this day, the zip gun bomber remains unidentified, and that's the zip gun bomber. Um, zip gun would be a whole other thing. Yeah, that would probably, sounds that like, would probably be much less fatal. That sounds like a name of some like generic brand of gum. Zip gum. Yeah, some like 1930s, like some of the first yeah. gum that was ever commercially available. The new zip gum! Dentist approved! Helps clean your teeth in under two seconds! All the kids are doing it! Yeah. Chew it today and then smoke your daily pack of cigarettes! New zip gum <laughs> and Marlboro cigarettes! Yeah. So, um, I don't know what else to say about this particular segment other than it is crazy. It's a crazy segment, and I definitely want to give, uh, the production crew a lot of credit for uh, the way that they were able to recreate these uh, zip guns. I, I thought it was really effective, although probably what it was is just blanks and like cap cap guns or whatever. But I, I thought they did a really good job in terms of the the production design and you know art direction and and just in terms of like the props and and creating that. Yeah, now, um, I know that they can't show how stuff, you know, is made or how these devices are put together, but I would have loved to have seen how exactly this contraption actually... I thought they were going to do that for a second, because, like, they showed the actual piece of evidence, and they showed, like, some shadowy figure in, in, in a basement working on, like, a, you know, a bomb, which th that seems to be their go-to for these bombers. Shadowy figure in a basement working on bombs. <laughs> yeah, I like. I'm just trying to think how. I wonder if there was any instances of like the bomber that it wasn't like that. He's like putting his bomb together in broad daylight or in the kitchen while he's eating his cereal. <laughs> his wife and kids are in the 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 kitchen all eating breakfast and. They got the cereal at the dinner table, and he's just sitting there with his suit and tie, just working on a bomb. Hey, Dad, what's that? Oh, this is a bomb, little Timmy. I'm going to kill some random people today. Why? Because it's fun! <laughs> I'm sick in the head. I need help. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, it's funny because you have, like, where this podcast is like we're talking about the pros of fucking people up, like the professionals. If that Seattle arsonist was a real person. But then you got like the Circleville letters where you got that one booby trap that uh, yeah. the guy, he, he just put this, he just put like a pistol inside this like shoe box that looked like it was full of <laughs> cement. It had this crude drawstring on it. And, yeah. it. and if the lady pulled the sign off, it was supposed to pull the string on the gun. Now that's, some, that's, that's like something that I would make if I was to make. <laughs> Uh, a a a bomb or a contraption that would try to hurt someone. Some dumbass zip gun bomber is like the thing that MacGyver would you know do if he was like contracted or like forced to create uh 
package bombs or package, you know, packages with guns in them because one of his family members is kidnapped or some. Yeah, shit. or it's like, like you better create these zip guns, otherwise we'll kill your kill your wife. It's like a like 007 James Bond thing, you know, like yeah, yeah, that like something that Q would come up with and and share with Bond. This is not an ordinary pocket Bible, Mister Bond. This is actually <laughs> yeah. a gun. <laughs> All right, up next, we're going to the headliner of the uh, podcast, the... uh, The main event. Yep, that's right. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Michael Buffer. Let's get ready to rumble! Anyway, I think I owe him money now, because this is technically like a public thing. (laughs) That sucks. That sucks. How the fuck do you trademark? Let's get ready to rumble. Anyway, um... This is a televangelist bombing. It started off with Pat Robertson, uh, who's kind of a bastard. And it uh, ended with... Um, Didn't he pass away recently? Uh, probably. I don't care. Then it ended with um, Joel Osteen's Faja. I think it's John Osteen or something. We'll get to him. Um, Faja? His Faja. Yeah. <laughs> it is his Faja. This was before Joel Osteen's permanently... Like, what is that? Grimacing face uh, made it onto TVs across the nation. It was back back when his daddy was leading the march, not not preaching the... And it's almost perm. Yeah. Hairstyle. Yeah, right. Near perm. I swear, Joel Osteen, if you look at the back of his head, he's probably got like two clothespins pulling his face like to, like <laughs> back so tightly as it is. And if you, like, undo the pins, his face probably flops down like Droopy Dog or something. That face is just too... He probably had plastic surgery. Probably. Like a facelift. Can you just make it... Can you just make it to where I'm I'm always smiling so people will see the light of the Lord on my face constantly and and make sure they'll give me all that money that that they possibly can? Can you just make me look like that? Joel, you'll look like a freak show. You'll look like a nightmare. Uh, Hey, look here, you son of a bitch. I didn't ask for your fucking opinion. Just fucking do it, okay? God bless you. Have a good day. Uh, so anyway, uh, this is televangelist Pat Robertson's daily broadcasts over CBN, which is the Christian Broadcasting Network. And these broadcasts are seen in nearly a million households nationwide. But his outspoken stance on controversial issues has made him the target of hate mail and death threats. I like how Unsolved Mysteries is very veiled in that. They're like, Mm -hmm. his controversial stances on certain issues, you know, they're not, they don't even want to like touch any of that with a 10 foot pole. They're trying to remain diplomatic here. Uh, Robertson's broadcasts originate from his headquarters in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Each day, thousands of letters and packages arrive at the CBN mailroom, most of them donations from viewers. But on April 27th, 1990, Scott Sheepers, a CBN security guard, was called to the mailroom to check a package addressed to Pat Robertson, quoting him. When I looked at the package on the monitor of the x-ray machine, I didn't see anything that led me to believe there was a problem or that it was really suspicious. Because they actually do... If anything looks suspicious that comes into the mailroom, they check it with an x-ray machine. Yeah. Because of how controversial Pat Robertson's opinions are. Yeah, well, they do that stuff for, like, the White House and all that kind of stuff. I should probably start doing that, too. I can't. I just can't afford a $15,000 x-ray machine. I could, I could just see someone sending you a glitter bomb or something. <laughs> that, that, that's what it is. You're now fabulous. <laughs> so, Sheepers remained on guard and decided to check the contents of the package. 
He was baffled by several strips of newspaper sticking out of the box. Quote, I was still somewhat skeptical about it, so I stepped away from the box as far as I could and took my left hand and extended it out and grabbed the lid of the box. As Scott opened the box, he was suddenly thrown to the floor by an explosion. I had severe pain in the upper part of my left leg and my abdomen, over to my right leg. I made the determination that this is it. You know it's either lay here and possibly die or get up and get help. So that's when I made the determination to help myself and pick myself off the floor and try to get to the front of the building. Now, the reenactment in this is not the best. Like, the guy, like, he actually did go through it, but uh, I, either the director didn't direct him properly or he just didn't really know how to act. Because as he's laying there with shrapnel, apparently, in his leg, and he's showing no emotion and no reaction whatsoever. He's just sitting there and looking at what looks like maybe, like, grape jelly or something that spilled on his pants. <laughs> And he's just like, with this blank look on his face. I'm like, if you had shrapnel in your leg and you're bleeding, I think your reaction would be more than just like, oh, I'm waiting at the DMV for, uh, my, to to get my license renewed. This is so boring. Like, I I would think that your reaction would be, I don't know, a little bit more pain than that. Yeah, I mean, I feel like as an actor, you know, there are very varying levels of skill sets to do to do pull off certain scenes. But I don't think the uh, motivation is very vague for this particular scene. You're a guy who just got shrapnel blown into your leg. And it's the actual guy that had shrapnel yeah, blown into yeah. his leg. How does that make you feel? <laughs> Do that. Perhaps it'd be something like, ah! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Somewhere along that line. Maybe go there. Um possibly laying there and staring blankly into the at the ceiling as if you were bored it is not the proper reaction so scott sheepers was rushed to a nearby hospital where he underwent emergency surgery to remove shrapnel embedded in his leg he says i'm very fortunate the trauma room doctor said if i had been holding the package i might not have made it out of the room itself so i consider myself very very fortunate that it wasn't any worse than it was now as for me, as someone who grew up in the Christian church and steeped in all things Christian, I was kind of taken aback how he didn't at any point, like, thank Jesus or thank God. He didn't say it was a miracle. Yeah, it was a miracle. God saw fit for me to live. You know, he was, this this guy was just like, I was just lucky. I was just really lucky, you know, and that's. Well, maybe he did. And it was just. Yeah, out. maybe so. But uh, or maybe the director's like, um. You know, can you can you use maybe you were lucky or fortunate instead of like thanking God and saying God and glory to God and speaking in tongues on camera? I mean, this is kind of airing on NBC and it's, you know, only like, you know, a certain percentage of the nation is Christian. So it might alienate some of our viewers. So anyway, I just thought that was funny because. The word luck or lucky doesn't really exist in proper Christian vernacular. Well, he said he was fortunate. Well, whatever. Fortunate, lucky. It's kind of similar. I guess not. Whatever. Mike, don't, don't, don't come at me with facts and <laughs> statements that were actually said. Let me live in my fantasy world of inaccuracies and gross exaggerations <laughs> and hyperbole. Um, so... Authorities determined that the package contained a homemade pipe bomb. Ooh. 
They quickly link the bomb to an earlier attack aimed at another televangelist, and this is where he makes his appearance, Pastor John Osteen. In 1960, Pastor Osteen founded the Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, which is still the church that you, I don't know if it's the same, it looks the same. Well, no, it did look the same, even in the 90s footage of it, at least. They showed the church, and it's funny because, like, this church exploded in popularity in, like, the 2000s, and you saw that shit on... TV all the time with Joel Osteen's pulled back plasticky grin. But um, the church was one of the largest in America and seated more than 8,000 worshipers. Like Robertson, Pastor Osteen used uh, television to spread the gospel. And he was also the target of a similar mail bomb. But they also mentioned like that, oh, but he didn't ask for donations. Yeah, which made him seem less douchey than Pat Robertson. Uh, he did not ask for donations uh, over on over camera. the television, which is slightly more commendable than Pat Robertson, which you know seems seedier. On January thirtieth, nineteen ninety, three months before the CBN bombing, Joel Osteen's daughter Lisa Ch- Signs, C I N E S. How would you say that, Lisa Signs? It wouldn't be it wouldn't be a hard C, would it? Kins Kinds. I don't think so. Signs. Anyway, Joel Osteen's daughter, Lisa, arrived in her office to open the day's mail, quoting her here. You know, you got to give her a similar cadence to Joel. It's actually Lisa Combs, isn't it? Because that's what it says on, on in the segment. It says her name is Lisa Combs. Oh, yeah, I think you're right. This is a, a mistype on uh, Unsolved's website. I got a crack squad here, man. The wiki had ever fucks up like this. Um, <laughs> anytime I can throw shade at John and Terry, I, I, no, I'm just joking. Although sometimes, sometimes Wikia does with misspellings and like, in improper grammar. So anyway, this Lisa chick gets a package in her office and then she goes, I, I felt, I felt like it was safe to open the package because I, I opened a lot of packages because well, we've never had any problems. And, and this looked like an ordinary package. It had a label addressed to my dad, typewritten to my dad, and then it had a return address. And, and you're not really suspicious of things like that. It was, it was just a cardboard box. It had one piece of tape on it. I opened the box when I was sitting down. And, and really, the next thing I remember is I was standing about five feet away from my chair. And I was very shaken as if I'd had an electrical shock. I'll never forget that feeling. Lisa had been the victim of a pipe bomb wrapped in newspaper. She suffered third degree burns and cuts on her right leg and abdomen. But she recovered and uh, quickly, she quickly recovered. And just four weeks, nice save there, Josh. And that's an edit you don't have to make now. And just four weeks later, she returned to the pulpit. According to Kenneth Weaver, chief postal inspector of the Eastern Region, the box used in both bombings was the type used by candle distributors, quoted here as saying, and there was some printed material on the outside of the box, which had been scratched out with the word burgundy with the box. We found that... Oh, we've, Ron Burgundy? Anchorman? <laughs> Gotta throw at least one dad joke in there. We found that <laughs> both of these packages were mailed from small towns near Fayetteville, North Carolina. The National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crimes researched all the evidence in both the bombing cases. They said, the number, um, they said number one, that this individual responsible for the bombings had some type of stress or tor- turmoil in his life at the time of the bombings. <laughs> I love that, because it's like, no shit. Yeah, yeah. 
Secondly, they felt that anyone around or in the presence of the bomber would have known a difference in this person's behavior. Again, it's... Again, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> I like how... I don't know. Like, that seems like a very oddly specific thing to surmise yeah, from the person. It does. It's like, are you sure it was a depressed bomber? Maybe it was a happy bomber. How, how do you know for sure? That's like saying, like, like we fe- uh, we've pretty much come up with that the bank robber who robbed the bank probably needed money. <laughs> you know, or, or the carjacker. Um, the profile that we've come up with so far is the carjacker was somebody who previously did not own an automobile, most likely. It's like, yeah, no shit, you know? So, uh, and they don't have this here on the case or whatever, but then they cut back to, uh, Osteen's daughter and she's like, I guess off camera they'd asked her if you could say anything to the bomber, what would you say? And she's like, I, I, I guess I would say, why? why? Why why, me? Why did you do that? You know, and you need to turn yourself in because, you know, I, I never did anything to anybody. And, and, you know, you've left my body with permanent scars and this, that, and the other. And, you know, I... She's talking about how she's a, a innocent victim. Again, again, I thought it was funny that she didn't throw God or I, I hope that you find the Lord or come to our but you mean they showed her like when she came back to the pulpit yeah like yeah a, they showed like a four that. second clip um i i think it was probably i uh, see that's where i would wonder on the editing front like did she s- i think there was just stuff edited out really it would be funny to me though if like it wasn't edited out and that's exactly what she said and she just never brought that stuff up you know because it's almost like well you know wouldn't you take this opportunity on national television to like preach the word of god or put your message out there but instead you're just like why did you do that to me you know why me yeah i don't know i just don't like joel osteen so much that it kind of like leaks on to like like carries over to his family too (laughs) so a composite sketch depicted the man who was seen mailing the bombs he's described as a neatly dressed white male with brown hair He has an average build and weighs between 160 to 175 pounds. Both bombs were mailed from within 25 miles of Fayetteville, North Carolina. The Postal Inspection Service is offering a reward of up to $50,000 in this case. Okay, so based on the composite, uh, this guy fits about, uh, I don't know, 60% of uh, the population of uh, the United States. So, yeah, good luck. Good luck finding that guy. Uh, (laughs) I I like... like, uh someone left a comment and they're like the sketches look like the father of the digger family from the 19 kids and counting show <laughs> a dugger <laughs> he does yeah the dugger guy yeah, it does. dugger <laughs> it does look like him oh my god <laughs> that's hilarious tell me i can't have more than two kids i'll show you motherfuckers i'll have my own tv show one day <laughs> come here honey i'm feeling horny god says it's all right now spread them. I'm going to put a bomb in you. A sperm bomb, apparently, with how many kids she had. <laughs> so, um, this is uh, unsolved. Uh, at the time of the bombings, investigators speculated that the cases might be linked to the murders of Judge Robert Smith Vance and civil rights attorney Robert Robinson, who were both killed with similar bombs. Walter Moody was later arrested and convicted for the murders of Vance and Robinson. However, he has never been conclusively linked to the televangelist bombings. 
More recently, some have suggested that Olympic Park bomber Eric Rudolph may have been responsible for the bombings. Interestingly, he matches the description of the bomber and lived in North Carolina around the time that the bombs were sent. The bombs he used in the 1996 attacks were similar in design to the televangelist bombs. Also, he was apparently against materialism and born-again Christians. However, he has never been officially connected to those bombings either. Uh, even though he hasn't been officially connected, I'm going to connect the dots here and just say that he's the most likely suspect. Yeah. I mean, he was in North Carolina around the time of the bombs, uh, that the bombs were sent. He, he is against materialism and born-again Christians. The, the design of his other bombs are similar to the bombs that were sent to the televangelists. So, yeah. As usual... What do you think? As usual, Mike, the crack gumshoe that he is, is, is putting the pieces together. <laughs> do, do, you, do you think that it was Eric? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, I'm more... I, what are I'm, your thoughts I'm, on televangelists? Uh, my, my thoughts on televangelists? Now... To me, there's two groups of televangelists. They're the old school, like, 80, 1980s, 1990s ones that were all like, reach your hand out and touch the screen. I, I can heal you. I can heal you from the screen. Just send me $10 million and and we will we will heal you. You know, there were those televangelists. And then I need a million dollars to help build this hospital or the school or the Lord to take me home. So give me a million dollars. <laughs> yeah. That so, actually happened. Yeah, I, I, I that know. That was real. So you got those people. I feel like the televangelist thing was really ruined with the... Um, uh, Tammy Faye yeah, Baker. Yeah, Tammy Faye Baker. Uh, what was her husband's name? Jim Baker. Yeah. Yeah, I feel... Jim I, and Tammy. I feel like... I just feel like... Oh, Lord, I have <laughs> sinned against you. Please forgive me. I beg of you. <laughs> It's, dude, it's all a fucking stage performance, man. It's just for dummies who, like, are too stupid to realize that it's all an act and that they're all acting. Not saying that they're religion, per se. I think there are some of them that are legitimate. I think there are some of them that may have started out legitimate in terms of wanting to help people. Who, who, who do you think so is legitimate? So forth. Well, I, th I think they might have been legitimate at one point in time. Who? Like people like Creflo Dollar, and I'm not saying they're legitimate now. I'm saying that maybe in the past, when they first started preaching, when they first started their ministries, when they were on TV for a little bit, they were legitimate. Yeah, you know who else started um, out legitimate? Or like Kenneth, and, Kenneth Copeland and stuff like you that. Know who, but you then, know who else started out legitimate until they got a taste of power? Jim Jones. We, oh, yeah, we I saw know. how that turned but, out. What I'm saying is that I feel that they probably might have started out with good intentions and then greed started to get the better of them. They realized that they could really game the system because uh, any kind of profit or any kind of money that's made with a church is not investigated by the IRS. There's no taxes that are put on it. So it, it, it's honestly free money. And you can tell, I mean... Look at look at Kenneth Copeland's mansion. I mean, look at it, it have multiple private jets. Uh, there's proof that he actually used his private jets, one of his private jets, for non-religious purposes. Those are what they're supposed to be for. It's like to fly to different countries and help with relief stuff. 
And he used it to fly to some place so he could like hunt with his family. Yeah, I don't even know who that person is. I've never heard of him, but I'm never heard of Kenneth Copeland. Uh-uh. Like he's one of like the biggest televangelists out there. That's how a I, I haven't had cable in like two years, and B if I did, that would be the last bullshit I would be wanting to watch. No, I know, I know, I know. I don't blame you. I'm just surprised you haven't heard of it in the news. Or Creflo Dollar talking about how I deserve another private jet or all this other stuff. It's like, oh, the Lord has blessed me and I put my time in. You know, if I want all of this, I I should have it, you know. And, of course, that speaks to other people who are like, oh, I want it too. And if you give this seed, then you plant this seed. You give me this money and then you'll get it back in tenfold. And it's just rotten to me. It was just rotten, despicable behavior, manipulating people who don't know any better. Uh, I'll cure your cancer if you send me all your money. It's just, it's just shitty, and, and makes the religion look bad. And I'm not really a part of it, but if I was, I'd be like, these are some of the worst people to 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 represent the Christian religion. Uh, even though they're, I mean, a lot of them are faker than hell, faker than fuck. They're, they're, they're not this smiling, happy-go-lucky, whatever, lovable uh, persona they put on, on camera. Uh, they don't have the ability to heal people. They, and, and, they're, and they're preaching all this fire and brimstone stuff or all these other stuff. And a lot of that's just theatrical. Like you said, it's a theatrical thing, you know? Uh, Sam Kinison was a preacher before he became, you know, a, a stand-up comedian, and you can hear it in his in his uh, the way that he uh, does his stand-up with the with the vocalization and and so on and so forth. Like a lot of preachers are just like, you know, that that it's just loud and kind of obnoxious, <laughs> but that's that's how you know they keep getting their atten- the attention of their of the people who are watching the show, and that's how they get people riled up and. And feeling the spirit and so on and so forth. Uh, it's just one of those things where if you get something out of the televangelists and their presentation, fine, teach their own. I don't have an issue with it. I just feel a large majority of them are just in it for the money. Really. They're in it for the money, the profit, the, 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 they're, they're in it for the donations. And I guarantee fucking tea, they're not. They're they're not only using that money to help people or to help with relief funds, and they probably are doing that, donating. But does that really make up for the amount of money that they're using and abusing for their own personal use, for their own uh, uh, mansions and and private jets and planes and and fucking cars and shit and automobiles, <laughs> planes, trains, and automobiles. <laughs> Does it, does it really make up for that? I don't think so. I really don't. These mega churches need to be taxed. They should not have a free fucking pass from the government. They should have their 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 uh, profits monitored by the IRS like everyone else, and they should be taxed. There's just no no excuse for it, in my opinion. I, I, I understand the separation of church and state, but in this instance, it's money. <laughs> We're talking about profit here. Yeah, Mike, I mean, that's just pretty much a long string of stuff that is pretty much indisputable by everybody across the board. Yeah, I mean, look what happened to Scientology. 
Well, there. That's not. That's barely even a religion, if you ask me. Oh yeah, and they managed to figure that out and get that exemption. It's a. It's a wink and a nod religion. It's a yeah, we're a religion. Wink, wink, nod, nod. You know. Do you have any other non-controversial opinions, Mike? <laughs> Are you sure this is this is non? This is not controversial. I feel like in I, this I day, and, I feel like in this day and age, I don't think there's going to be anyone that's going to stand up and say, "Actually, we were no preachers ask for a lot of money, and you just give it to them blindly. That's a good thing." I don't think anybody's... there will be some people who will make. Come on, you know, there's going to be some people who watch, you know, the TBN and all these other things who would just be like, "How dare I don't you?" Think speak they, I don't think of, those people are listening them. to us at this point. Uh, yeah, <laughs> or if they're new to the podcast, they'll quickly like turn us off and leave a one star. But I mean, honestly, in the the world of podcasts, there's like not. I mean, a lot of podcasts like don't look favorably upon. I don't. I don't know why. I'm, oh, there's Christian podcasts. There's a lot of. Yeah, Christian I don't know why I like there. attempted to make a generalized statement there when I don't know what I'm talking about. Okay, folks, let's let's transition. Stop it. Let's transition the <laughs> fuck out of this, whatever this is, what we're doing right now, and go into um, a secret, basically a secret that I was told by one of our uh, new Patreon members, David Macedo. Macedo. Um, he told me, and he told me I pronounce his name. I almost thought you were gonna say Miscavige. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, he, uh, David Miscavige, loves our podcast. <laughs> He loves that impression. You I do, just Josh. want to that's, take that's this long. opportunity to point out what a fantastic podcast uncovering unexplained mysteries is. They have accelerated the parameters of what is possible for podcasting greatness. Now, um, I love doing his voice. I, I just want to do a whole podcast in his voice. Um, he's so over the top when he speaks. Like, yeah, so theatrical. So anyway, David, like a lot of preachers yeah, are. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You got to have that, that razzle dazzle, man, or you ain't going to get no followers. Because people are sheep, man. And that's another fucking kind of cliched statement at this point. Sheeple, man. I would say, yeah, I would say that some people are sheep. Like some, there, there are a good amount of people who are more likely to be drawn into that kind of stuff and follow the herd. But not everyone is sheep. I, that's the, I, I just hate that in general, where they're like, oh, something bad happens, like that documentary Blackfish, and there's people who are mistreating animals. Well, mankind is to blame for all of that. It's like, not the entire human race is not to blame for that kind of those kind of actions. You're blaming essentially yourself, Josh, me, for the shit that we had nothing to do with. Like, that's not fair. At all. Oh well, there's a lot of uh, blaming of um, of of me for for my various attributes nowadays that I had nothing to do with. Um, I'm not going to go there, but yeah, I mean that's that's a very blanket statements and uh, huge generalizations are in. But you know what? I'm the kind of guy that enjoys a good blanket generalization, so I should really be more respectful of these uh, organizations that are doing this. God damn, these shorts have shrunk in the fucking wash <laughs> they just don't fit the same as they used to and i know i'm so so it's 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 the shorts that shrunk right it's not not that you gained anything no no i've been know. losing god damn it i've been losing <laughs> anyway david 
told me um, something that happened to his son, actually. Um, so after moving to their new home, the Macedo family's cat is killed after wandering onto the highway. Judd, an elderly neighbor, shows David, the father, to an isolated hill behind the local pet cemetery and instructs him to bury the deceased feline there. Not long after that, the cat reappears at the, at the Macedo home. Only this time, he is not the same. The docile cat is now vicious and destructive. He's an ass. He's an ass. <laughs> when their youngest son meets with a fatal accident, the distraught David buries his son in the same location, hoping to revive him. Unfortunately, it did not go down that way, and he unleashes far more than he had bargained for. And I mean, David, I'm sorry that your son came back to life and he was a dick. But I mean, the old man who looked like Teddy Roosevelt even told you, sometimes dad is better. You know, but you didn't listen. No, he didn't look like he looked like uh, Franklin Roosevelt, not Teddy Roosevelt. The old man, <laughs> yeah, the like, old man looked like yeah. Franklin Roosevelt. I thought he looked like Herman Munster. You know, whatever. Semantics. He looks like, his face looks like potato or potato, however that phrase goes. Um, I think that's it. We jammed a lot into this hour and 30 minutes. It really stuffed this one. Yes, stuffed its ass full of stuffing, and it ain't even Thanksgiving yet. So, um, if you want to catch me and Mike separately, but oh so equally on YouTube, you can do that because you know we do a bunch of stuff. You know we're doing we're doing all the stuffs going on here. Um, Mike's YouTube channel is YouTube.com/OCPcommunications. He is a movie guy. He reviews movies. And uh, what was the last movie that you reviewed, Mike? Mandy. You really liked that one, and, and it. Yes, I would say it's the best film of 2018 for me personally. Visually stunning. Uh, it captures Nicolas Cage at his cocaine-fueled best. And uh, it's it's definitely unlike any other film you'll probably see this year. It's available on streaming right now, uh, but it will also be available on Blu-ray on October 30th. So just in time for the Halloween season. If you don't want to wait that long, I would definitely recommend, you know, giving a rent at least, checking it out. Uh, it's definitely worth a watch just for the visuals alone. Uh, it is crazy and it's a slow burn, but it definitely gets it get, definitely gets going. It, it's a lot like a, a, a 70s era sort of pulp horror novel come to life on, on, on the screen. It even has uh, separate chapters and stuff that are... Uh, yeah, that are the way that the film is used in terms of the way that the film uses in terms of its structure. So it's almost like it's broken up into chapters. And the last 30 minutes, 30, 40 minutes is just pure, insane cage rage. <laughs> cage. Uh, anyway, if you want to catch me on YouTube, I am YouTube.com slash Dancing with Ghosts. Uh, you can go there now and see my lowest viewed YouTube video of all time. It is a book I made or a video I made on a guitar effects pedal book that I thought would do gangbusters because there was no video about the book out on YouTube and I was completely wrong it's it's literally the worst lowest viewed video 
I've ever put out. Uh, it's been out for almost a week, and it's only got 61 views. Um, absolutely abysmal performance for my channel. Um, but there's a lot of other videos on my channel that have much more views and are on mu apparently much more interesting topics because that one just flopped uh, harder than I've ever had a video flop. Because, um, you know, used to 120 views, out that kind of area around there, that was like the flop, you know, like the video did bad. But this is like a new standard of flop with my last YouTube video. Um, so, yeah. Welcome to the party, pal. <laughs> I don't like the party. I want to leave. <laughs> but anyway, uh, until next week, man, I hope you guys have a good rest of your week and be safe and all that stuff. And uh, yeah, bye. See ya. What's up, everybody? Just want to remind everyone that my album, The Nightmare Inside You, is still up for sale. And we have new band t-shirts as well. All of this is in the description of this podcast. So check it out. And if you dig the music, maybe consider supporting me. Now enjoy some more of the album. about the lady who was talking about uh in florida like she was tired of people coming in and microwaving their pee in the in her uh convenience store why so would they microwave their pee to uh help get around drug tests oh is that is that a real thing i guess so does it like destroy the drug compound or, or, or microwave other people's pee i don't know that's disgusting can you imagine the fucking smell yeah I don't want to be buried in a pet cemetery. <laughs> don't want to live this life again. I don't, I don't want to live my life again. I think that's what, what the lyrics were. But yeah, it the, yeah, that's not a bad song, but it's just inappropriate at the end credits. Yeah. Because it's too upbeat. Yeah, it's kind of weird. All of a sudden, you know, the dad's a dumbass, brings his wife back to life after he buried her in the pet cemetery. She's ready to kill him. End credits. I don't want to be living <laughs> in a pet cemetery. I don't want to live my life again. -na 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 -na. <laughs> For some reason, my radio station keeps playing I'm going to fuck you like an animal, the censor version. Like, I've heard that twice, like, Back to back each morning for some oh, reason. Oh, nine inch like nails. Every, yeah, I was like, I'm gonna fuck you like an animal. You're like, why the hell is this on the local radio station? I don't. Oh, but it, it's a censored <laughs> version, though. It's not, they're not. Yeah, okay. I'm gonna F you like an animal, but like, come on, you know what it is. Yeah. That, that song was like so, it's a good song, but like, I've, I've listened to The Downward Spiral by Nine Inch Nails and a fucking gr <laughs> amazing album, but, uh, I don't know. That song was like so weird, like so out in left field. Like how, like 
How awesome was- I'm just thinking about uh, Wasp. Like, you know, I fuck like a beast. Like, that's what I'm thinking of when they- uh, Well, you're, you're you need like to get animal. out of the lame-ass hair metal 80s and get into cool shit like Nine Inch Nails. Uh, Nine Inch Nails is cool, too, but Wasp has done some cool music, too. Yeah, if you say so. Take your word for it. <laughs> How cool, though, was the 90s that songs like that got played on mainstream fucking radio- Compared to how yeah. fucking lame it is now with Ariana Grande, Ed Sheeran, Post Maloney, Baloney, Provolone, whatever the fuck his name is. I hate all this shit. I'm, I know I'm sounding old, but I, I hate the entire time I was a kid up until now, there's been shit on the radio. And it's like all the time before when I was growing up, like, but, you know, when I was, like, young during the 90s, but too young to really listen to the radio and know what was going on, they were actually playing some pretty fucking decent shit. I mean, the top of the pop charts uh, back then were, like, rock bands, like Soul Asylum and Collective Soul. and Well, that wasn't really the top of the pop charts. Gin chart. Blossoms, dude. Rock, yeah, but rock was actually... They were, dude, they were played was, on pop radio. Gin Blossoms. They were, but it wasn't actually on the pop charts. Yeah, yeah it was. I guarantee they don't include stuff like that. They include that they have their own separate thing. The Billboard Top 100 is yeah. Well, it could be the Billboard Top 100. That's what for I'm just. That's 100 what, songs. Period. That's what I'm referring to. Numb nipples. Oh, okay. All right. But now, I I don't even know what's on there, and I don't want to know because it's it's just gonna make me sad that I'm getting less and less relevant as time goes on. Anyway, let's get back into this shit. <laughs> Uh, sorry, I called your nipple. Because well, I because your- I know rock is actually like that's not doing as well. Period. Oh, rock, rock's charts. dead, dude. I mean, it's all but dead. It's sad. But for some reason, Maroon Five can't fucking go. They're away. not rock. They are a pop. A pop. It, I know, but I just they still can't go away. Like, honestly, that band needs to be recently. that band needs to be renamed Adam Levine and the Maroons or something because <laughs> that is not a a band as they would have you to believe. I don't I don't believe it, at least. Or if they are, they're one of the like 1% of bands that actually have sustained mainstream popularity for all this time. I mean, how bad the rock charts have been. I mean, you've had bands like fucking Train. Oh, God. You know, hit the number one spot. Tell me! Lately. Did you one without... Oh, my... His lyrics are, like, the worst. <laughs> like a trash bag? His his <laughs> lyrics are the fucking worst. I think he actually talks about a trash bag. Hey, I think, soul in sister, ain't that Mr. Mr. on the radio? Video, the way you move ain't fair, you know. Hey, like he literally rhymed "Hey Soul Sister" with "Ain't That Mister Mister" on the radio. It's like, <laughs> oh yeah, that was that was totally like a a deliberate choice. You weren't just you didn't just say "Mister Mister" because it was one of the only things that rhymed with so, "Hey Soul Sister." You know, I mean, I guess it was better than "Hey Soul Sister, Touch My F- Fever Blister." You know, <laughs> guess it was a better line than that. But I mean, beyond that, I can't think of anything else would have been better. I'll just swear you lay it down. Drag the waters till the depths give up their day. What did you expect to find? 
Was it something you left behind? Dead actors faking lines Over and over and over again she cried Don't fall away Leave me to myself Don't fall away And leave love bleeding in my hands In my hands